Well, we're in Luke chapter 8, and we're going to be covering the segment from verse 22 through the end of the chapter. And instead of reading it up front, I'll walk us through the text uh, as we go. But I did want to read just one verse uh, for our opening. And it's uh, from Luke chapter 8, verse number 24. I'd like to read the second half of the verse. Luke 8, 24. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was a calm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning. Perhaps some of us who are in the midst of a, of a life storm. That we would truly see you as the one who can calm it. You're the one who can say, peace be still. And it can be calmed. So help us today to listen to your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verses 22 through the end of the chapter recount four miracle stories. And what I'd like to do this morning is simply answer a few questions about these stories. The first one, what are they about? Then the second one, why did Luke include these stories? And then the third, what should we learn from them? So let's start by just trying to grasp a basic understanding of each miracle story. And I'm gonna let you know right up front, this one takes 90% of the morning, okay? We're gonna, some of you are like, there's three questions. Wow, this first one's going long. No, this is like almost the whole thing, okay? Almost the whole thing, so fear not. <laughs> Only believe. That's a, that's, that's a verse here. Okay, so what are these stories about? Beginning in verse number 22, there's the first miracle story that is about a violent storm. Verses 23 through 25 recount this miracle story. Here's Jesus. And according to the Gospel of Mark, this, uh, these, these four miracles, they all happen on the same day as Jesus had preached the parable of the soil, the seed, and the sower. So if you were here last week, Pastor Will unpacked that parable for us. What we know from the Gospel of Mark on the very same day. So after he finishes telling the parable of the seed, the sower, and the soils, these things unfold. He tells his disciples in verse 22 to get into a boat. Take a look at the text. Verse 22, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. It was evening, apparently, according to Mark. Jesus was tired from a long day of ministry. And so while the disciples sailed, Jesus slept. That's what we find in verse number 23. As they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, some of you may not know this, but actually preaching and teaching can wear you out. It can make you tired. Um, last year, how many of you know Daniel and Christy Mulder? Okay, they're missionaries. They're sent out from our church. Daniel, last year, uh, preached for us on a Sunday. And, you know, he spent the whole week, he's preparing this message. He's, he's getting it all ready, studying the text, spending a long time in the Word. He gets up early on Sunday morning, the Sunday he's, he's going to preach, and he's reviewing his sermon notes. He's all ready. And then he gets here on that Sunday, and he preaches service one, and then he preaches service two, and then he goes home. Later that afternoon, his wife, Christy, texts my wife, Liesl, and asks, is it normal to take a three-hour nap after preaching? <laughs> Should I wake him up? Is, that, is he okay? You know, he was tired. He was tired. And I'll tell you, so was Jesus. He'd been teaching this crowd all day. He'd been ministering to them. And so he's tired, and he falls asleep in the boat as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. Now, the disciples at this point must have been on a high. They felt like they were post-grad students in the school of faith. Jesus had just told them what the parable was about. You know, I mean, they had the inside scoop. If you were here last week, the beginning of chapter 8, 
These disciples knew what this meant and that meant. Even the rabbis, the scribes didn't understand this, but they did. They knew some of these mysteries. But what we're going to discover in this first miracle story is that faith needs to be tested before it can be trusted. In other words, it's one thing to have academic knowledge. It's another thing to have active faith. In other words, you, you can come to church for a very long time. You can actually tell me what Luke chapter 8 is all about. I mean, tell me what the story is about. Tell me what happens. Oh, hey, Lucas, by the way, Jesus is going to say, peace, be still, and he's going to calm the storm. Ha <laughs> ha, spoiler alert, I already knew that. Well, congratulations. But it's not about your academic knowledge. It's about your active faith. These disciples had just gotten a lot of insight about Jesus' teaching. But what we're curious to find out is if what they learned was going to be put into practice. Put into practice when it really matters. And I want to just ask you this morning, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have a faith that actually works in times of trials. If you have faith that fails in trials, it's a faith worth losing. It's like having an umbrella that doesn't work in the rain. An air conditioner that doesn't work when it's hot. Faith that doesn't work in trials should be lost. You need a faith that works. And we're wondering about these disciples. Oh, they've learned some things, but are they going to put it into practice? Notice verse number 23. A windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now, the Sea of Galilee, and there's, there's a whole, I think, a crew of 20 people from our church going to Israel this week on Tuesday. And, and you're going to see this, right? You're going to see the geography here. You have the Sea of Galilee and it's 700 feet below sea level. So it's, it's sunken way down. It's near some mountains. And so what ends up happening is the cold air sweeps down from these heights. It goes through these gorges. And then suddenly you can have these squalls brew without warning. Storms can be stirred up very quickly. This was not a gentle rain. This wasn't a few swells on the water. When you read this text, you have to realize that veteran fishermen were afraid for their lives. That's what's happening here. Now, I wonder if you can relate to a storm at sea. Some of you are like, no, I can't relate to storms at sea. That's why I don't get in cruises. Have you heard of the Titanic? You're telling me all the reasons you don't want to go to sea. All right, gotcha. But have you ever been in a storm where you've been scared? I lived in Wichita Falls, Texas. It's the bottom of Tornado Alley. There were some scary storms. Or maybe you, maybe you lived here in Salt Lake in 2020. Do you remember that windstorm we had? Up to 97 mile an hour winds tore up 1,300 trees in our city. Some of, the, some of the biggest ones right here in our park. Maybe that storm's coming through and you're scared. And in that moment, all you can think about is the severity of the storm instead of the power of the Lord. Have you been in a situation, and maybe not a physical storm, maybe a storm of life, where you've been tempted to look at the severity of the circumstance instead of the power of the Lord? That's where these disciples were. They, they forgot passages like Psalm 46. We sang this this morning. Pastor John had this for us already. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. They forgot Psalm 46, and they were very afraid. The violent storm took center stage, and somehow they forgot who Jesus was. And while we'd like to look down our noses at these disciples, we often find ourselves in the same place. One poet put it this way, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn minutes into hours? Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn minutes 
into hours. You've been in a trial for quite some time. And the minutes have turned to hours and you're wondering if God really cares. You're wondering if he loves you. You've wondered if he's powerful enough to do anything. The disciples are exasperated at Jesus. He's sleeping while they're nearly dying. Look at verse 24. Take a look at the verse. Master, Master, we're perishing. You almost hear the tone, right? Like, are you going to lay around and do nothing while we die? That's what's going on here. When these disciples couldn't see Jesus' work, they couldn't trust Jesus' work. Sometimes we're the same way. Like, I only trust him when I see him doing something. But when there's silence, I struggle. Like, are you in a difficulty? You're in some circumstance, a family situation, a physical situation, a financial situation. Something's going on in your life that's very hard. And you don't see God doing something. And you're struggling to trust him. In World War II, Allied troops were going through Cologne, Germany. And in the basement of a house, they found this inscription carved into the wall. I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. I believe in love, even when feeling it not. I believe in God even when God is silent. Do you? These disciples were struggling. Wake up, Master. Master, we're perishing. Well, in verse number 24, Jesus awakes. Notice what the text says. It says, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. Friends, the winds and waves don't have minds to think. And they don't have ears to hear. And yet, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. What's our excuse? We have minds to think and we, we have ears to hear. Will we obey the word of the Lord? I got to this section of the past and I'm like, man, the winds and waves put me to shame. I think we're supposed to discover from this first miracle story that Jesus doesn't always deliver us from the tidal waves that batter our lives. Sometimes he delivers us through them. And I just wonder if you've been at a place where you've been praying the wrong way. Like your life is difficult in some way and what you've been praying for is, God, would you deliver me from this? When maybe he actually wants to deliver you through this, these disciples, picture them here. They're sopping wet. They're chilled to the bone. They're tired out. But they're safe in the end with Jesus. Like, are you willing to be sopping wet, chilled to the bone, tired out in your storm, but safe in the presence of Jesus. Now in this sudden moment of silence, remember he says, peace be still, the winds and the waves cease, the lake is placid like glass. We have to catch something here. And that is that Jesus is exercising divine power. He does something only God can do. And these disciples should have remembered some Old Testament passages. And I want to read some for you because these should have been the ones that were clicking when these circumstances unfolded, they should have been thinking of these Old Testament passages, passages like Psalm 107, 26. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Listen to this. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. The psalmist says, that's what God does. Or how about Psalm 65, verse five? By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the one who stills the roaring of the seas, 
the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. In other words, God, you're the one who does this. Or how about Psalm 89, verse 9? You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You see, the disciples should have been thinking about some of these Old Testament passages because Jesus stands up and says, peace be still, and the winds and the waves cease. Just like the Psalms say, that's what God does. Well, all the disciples can do in the wake of this miraculous moment is verse number 25. They ask a question. This is an important question. It's a question that echoes through the next few chapters of the book of Luke. Look at verse number 25. Who then is this that commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? What we're going to find in the next few chapters of the book of Luke is people are going to say different things about Jesus. Oh, he's Elijah. Oh, he's one of the prophets. Oh, he's this or he's that. Herod's going to question it. I mean, different people are going to wonder, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Until we get to chapter 9, verse number 20, and Jesus is going to look right at his disciples and say this, but who do you say that I am? Yeah, I know these different people have these different perspectives, but who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter is going to say, you are the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the deliverer sent by God. You're God's own son. Here, what we find in this text is that Jesus is sovereign over the storm. He can tell the wind and the waves what to do. And if he can do that on the Sea of Galilee, he can do that in your life. First miracle story, violent storm. Second miracle story, here it is. It's a Gentile demoniac. This Gentile who's possessed by all these different demons. It's in verses 26 through 39. Now, when I bring up demons, people have different thoughts about this. C.S. Lewis helpfully wrote this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel excessive, unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist and the magician with the same delight. In other words, there are two ditches that we can fall into when it comes to demons. You can think, oh, they don't exist, or you can get kind of fixated on them. He says, don't do either. Know that they are real, however. And here in our text, it comes to bear. Jesus and disciples, they, he calms the sea. They get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side. Verse number 26 says it's the, it's the region of the Gerizines. This was a Gentile region. Some of you are wondering, like, well, where does it say that? I don't see where it says Gentile region. No, it doesn't say that specifically. It just says it was a place where they raised a bunch of pigs. Jews don't raise pigs. It's a Gentile region. It's a place where the, the 10th legion of the Roman army was encamped there. There could have been... I don't know, any less congenial place for Jesus to go, but this is where he's taking his disciples. So here we are, and no sooner has the wooden hull scraped against the gravel of the shore when a naked guy without tan lines aggressively approaches Jesus. You say, why without tan lines? It just says he's been naked for a long time, no clothes, okay? (laughs) So he's aggressively approaching Jesus. Now, in the other gospel accounts, we, we come to realize that this guy is, is tormented and he shrieks day and night and he cuts his flesh with stones and they've tried to bind him in fetters, but he breaks them off. He lives among the tombs. But what's interesting here is as this man aggressively approaches Jesus, Jesus, just like Jesus remained calm in the storm at sea, Jesus remains calm in the presence of this human storm. Have you ever faced a human storm? It's this person, they're just a wreck. And what does that do to you? Do you get filled with anxiety? Do you get fearful? Do you go back on the, on the counteroffensive? How do you respond? But here's Jesus. He's just calm. This aggressive man is coming towards him. That's what the verb says in the text. He's aggressively approaching Jesus. And then we're surprised to find out what happens. We're wondering if there's going to be some altercation. Is he going to throw a punch? What's going to happen here? When suddenly this demoniac 
falls down on his face before Jesus. Verse number 28, he says, son of the most high God. It's almost as if, I think this is fascinating. It's almost as if this is foreshadowing what Philippians 2 says is going to happen one day. God hath highly exalted Jesus, his name above every name, so that at the name of Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's this man possessed by demons coming towards Jesus and what he has to do is fall down and confess that he is the son of the most high God. Jesus asks the name of the unwelcomed inhabitants that possess this man. And in verse number 30, they say, legion, because many demons, this is verse 30, many demons entered him. Now, legion, in reference to Roman armies, that was, that was the equivalent of 6,000 soldiers. That's how many was in a legion. Now, we don't know if that's the precise number of demons, but we do know that this man was inhabited by many demons. I think what's interesting in the text in verses 28 through 31, however, is that they have to beg Jesus. Two times it says they beg Jesus. And the reason I want to point that out is because sometimes we have this idea, there's like, you know, forces of evil and the forces of good, and they are in conflict one with another. And they, well, no, it's not really like this. There's a legion of demons, and then there's Jesus. There's all of these fallen angels and forces of darkness, and then there's Jesus. And they have to fall down before him and beg him. They beg him, don't torment us. Don't cast us into the abyss, verses 28 and 31. And we discover no opponent is stronger than our Lord. They have to bow before them. So here Jesus permits the demons to leave this man and go into a large herd of pigs nearby. And no sooner do they leave the man, enter the pigs, that these demons drive the swine off of a cliff and they all drown. Now at this point in the story, some people are troubled. Couldn't Jesus have done this miracle without allowing the demons to kill so many poor animals? How could Jesus permit such financial loss to these farmers? I mean, they're just trying to reduce our carbon footprint. Those were free-range pigs. Now, how could this happen? Like, people are worried about the pigs, you know, as one author said. And that represents a spectacular exercise in missing the point. No, that's not the point. The point here is that Jesus conquered a legion of demons with a word. The point is that Jesus is about mercy, not money. The townspeople didn't feel that way, however. In this story, they come and they find this one who used to rage through the tombs to scream night and day to cut himself. This man, they see him clothed. They see him in his right mind. And how do they respond? Verse 37, they want Jesus to leave immediately. One poet tried to summarize it this way. Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men. We swine. In other words, we care more about the financial loss than the healing of this man. In other words, you're messing things up around here, Jesus. You're disturbing the status quo. Maybe they looked at that guy and they didn't care much about him being homeless or him, him being tormented. They didn't care much about that. Just, just don't disrupt life around here, Jesus. You know, I wonder if some of these people had demons of their own. They didn't want disrupted. C.S. Lewis writes this about himself before he was uh, converted he says this, he says, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. That's what he says about himself. In other words, I, I had my own demons 
And I just wonder if the people in this town didn't want Jesus messing with theirs. You've done enough change here. You've disturbed enough of the status quo. Leave us alone. And so in verse number 37, Jesus gets in a boat to leave. Before he pushes off from shore, we can't miss the closing of the story. Here's this man who had been cleansed from a legion of demons, and he wants to go with Jesus. Can I come with you? Take me with you. And Jesus turns to him and says, no. Instead, he says in verse number 39, you stay. Look at verse 39. And declare how much God has done for you. In other words, you've experienced mercy. Declare it to others. Friend, have you experienced some mercy? Has God done a work in your life? Then share it with others. That's what he's telling this man to do. Now, the story closes. And some of you may miss the main point. Look at how it closes. Jesus says, declare how much God has done for you. Then he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Did you catch it? Did you catch the main point of the story? Take a look at it again. Jesus says, declare what God has done for you. And so he went around declaring what Jesus had done for him. Did you catch it? It's almost like Luke doesn't state it explicitly. He just lets you catch it. I mean, when you see it, you can't unsee it. Go declare what God has done for you. So he went around declaring what Jesus had done for him. Of course, yeah, let's tell what Jesus had done. Because Jesus is what? God. Yeah, that's what he's getting at. Okay, so violent storm, a Gentile demoniac. Here's a third miracle story. And actually the third and fourth are linked together. It's a sick woman and a dead girl. And that takes the remaining of the chapter, the remainder of the chapter. And basically, these two accounts are woven together. They're kind of like binary stars. Do you know what binary stars are? They're stars that orbit each other. And in the night sky, they're so far away, they look like what? They look like just one star. There's two there, but they look like one. And in some of your Bibles, the next two stories only have one heading. And it's because this is a double miracle. It's the only one that's in the synoptic gospels. What happens is he starts a, a miracle story and then interrupts it with another miracle story and then finishes the one he began with. So we have a sick woman and a dead girl. Let me, let me tell you how the account begins. It begins with a Jewish synagogue ruler named Jairus. And he's going to fall down before Jesus and ask Jesus to come to his house and heal his only daughter, his 12-year-old daughter who's dying. Now, this is an important start here. We're, we're in verses 41 and 42, and here's this, this, this religious, high-class synagogue leader. And by this time in Jesus' ministry, he wasn't really welcomed in the synagogues. This high-class Jewish religious leader comes to Jesus, and he does the very same thing the demoniac did. Remember? What does he do? He just falls down before Jesus. He doesn't care about dignity. He doesn't care about his position in the community. He doesn't care what other people think. He just falls down before Jesus and begs. He said, what, I mean, what would you do if you had a kid who was dying? To what lengths would you go? I mean, he doesn't care what other people think. He has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying. And so he falls down before Jesus and he just begs Jesus, would you come? This is my only daughter. Well, Jesus agrees to come. And in verse number 42, we find, as Jesus went, people pressed around him. In other words, there were some other people that wanted to be near Jesus and wanted to listen to him and, and wanted to hear what he had to say. And so you can imagine these small streets and, and people are kind of pressed in on him. Maybe a welcoming committee of sorts in this place. Now in that moment, Jairus, the, the, the father, he, he's just, he's terrified that his daughter's going to die. He's in a hurry. He's trying to make some, some headway. I mean, if, if he had lights and a siren, he would have turned them on. Have you ever been in a hurry and you're stuck behind someone slow? Like two people in here have had that experience. <laughs> it just happened to me recently on 1300 South here. I was coming from the bench and I was coming down here towards the church. 
and I was in a bit of a hurry. I hope it was no one here. That this, uh, there was a person in the car in front of me. I do not know what was going on, but they would go about 30 miles an hour and then come to almost a stop, like almost like three miles an hour, and then speed up. And not at intersections, not turning into a driveway. It was just like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm behind them in my Suburban, and I mean, I was patient for a little while. And then I gave him a friendly hello, you know, honk, 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 I'm back here, hello, what are you doing? You're a crazy driver, hello, we don't do this. And I waited a couple more times, and I, I did maybe honk a second, or third, I don't know. I, <laughs> I wanted them to be safe. I wanted them to know this isn't safe. Um, and then finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. I'm just going to be transparent. I just got into the other lane and went, went past them just, and got around them. And I let them do their stopping, go. I, I have no idea what was happening. Have you ever been in a rush and been behind someone slow? And you know how that feels inside? Imagine if your daughter's dying. And you're in a rush to get Jesus there. And everyone is going slow. Like I have the Zootopia thing. Remember the sloth in Zootopia at the DMV? He's like, I mean, have you ever been somewhere? You're like, come on. You want to scream. Jairus wanted to scream. Hurry up. Get out of his way. He has to get to my house. My daughter's dying. Clear the way. Make some room. But that's not happening. Everybody's crowding around Jesus. And then something unexpected happens. Jesus comes to a complete stop. In our text, on his way to heal a 12-year-old girl, there's a 12-year-long sick woman. Verse number 44. She's battled a a sickness for, for 12 years. And she sneaks through the crowd, reaches her hand out, and touches Jesus. Verse 44, do you see it there? She touched the fringe of his garment. Now, why would she do that? Because in verse 43, it says, she had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. In other words, here is this woman who tried all the home remedies. She went on to WebMD and tried to self-diagnose. She followed the traditional rabbinic advice. They actually have recorded advice in the Talmud about what to do when a woman had an issue of blood. This is what it says. It says, take of the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, and of alum, the same, of crocus, the same. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take Persian onions, three pints, Boil them in wine and give her to drink and say, arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet. Let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind her and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. Now, this seems kind of strange, but that's what was written in the Talmud. I mean, you have a theme of wine, you have some onions, and scare tactics to cure hiccups. That's what was supposed to happen. And it says this, listen, this woman, she tried everything. None of it would work, but she heard about Jesus. So though she was unclean, defiled, destitute, she was determined to get to Jesus. I just want to ask you, when you've gotten to a place where you've exhausted all of your resources and things are still bad, do you go to Jesus? Better yet, do you go to Jesus first? I mean, are you determined in your darkest hours and deepest pain to go to Jesus first? This lady's determined. She reaches out and touches his garment, and then she begins to jump up and down saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, and do the praise hands. No, she doesn't do that. If you know how this story goes, she reaches out, touches Jesus' garment, and it says in verse 44, immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She's completely healed. And then what happens? 
she slips back into the shadows of the crowd, silently trying to disappear. That's when Jesus stops. You see, he's on his way to go heal Jairus' daughter. This woman sneaks up in the crowd, touches him, realizes she's fully healed, and slips back into the shadows, and Jesus stops. Jesus stops, and he looks around him. Verse 45, who was it that touched me? Verse 46, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. So imagine this, you got all these people around and they're walking and, and then Jesus stops suddenly and everyone's like stopping around him. And then he says, who touched me? Who touched me? Because I perceive the power has gone out from me. And it's like he's looking around like this and there's this awkward silence. Have you ever been in like, someone needs to say something? Anyone, anyone, anyone? Peter, <laughs> whenever we need someone to put their foot in their mouth, Peter is right there. <laughs> so he just pipes up, master, verse 45, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And, uh, pick somebody. They've all probably touched you, Jesus. Let's get going. You know, I mean, there's Peter. But Jesus won't get going. He continues scanning the crowd. Not with mean eyes, not with angry eyes. It's a searching gaze. And this is how I picture it. It's like he's looking across the crowd. And then he stops. And he won't change his gaze. And I get that from our text in verse 47 because it says, when the woman saw that she was not hidden. It's almost like he just fixed his gaze on her. Like, are, are you ready yet to step forward? When the woman saw that she was not hidden, verse 47, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now, what would you be wondering if you were that woman? I'm going to tell you what you'd be wondering. You'd be wondering if he was going to take the healing back. You'd be wondering if somehow you would be cursed for stealing a healing. I didn't ask for permission. I Maybe I should have said, can I touch the hem of your garment? What's he going to do here? But then there's this calming word. He looks at her and says, daughter. He says, daughter, verse 48, your faith has made you well. And at this point in the story, we're coming to understand that there's a difference between those who are near Jesus and those who touch him by faith. Augustine put it this way. He says, flesh presses, faith touches. There's all these people. I mean, Peter's like, come on. I mean, everybody's pressing against you. I mean, we're, what? Yeah, but someone touched him. Faith, or flesh presses, faith touches. He heals the one of faith and he says, depart in peace. Meanwhile, Jairus is anything but at peace. This father is wanting Jesus to hurry up. His daughter's dying, but Jesus is pausing. His daughter is fading. Jesus is getting distracted. He wants to honk the horn and say, come on already. And just when Jairus is burning up inside to try to hurry Jesus along, one of his servants comes up to him and says this in verse number 49. Look at verse 49. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. In other words, cancel the ambulance. Her time has passed. Now, I want you to pause and think for a minute about the tidal wave of grief that must have hit this father. About how he must have been paralyzed with, with just grief inside. He just got word that his daughter was dead. And in that moment of shock, Jesus says this. He says, verse 51, if you underline things in your Bible, underline this. Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. I want you to think for a second, what is it that you get most anxious about? 
What is it you are most fearful of? What's the heaviest weight on your heart right now? Jesus says, do not fear. Only believe. Friends, sometimes God's timing doesn't make sense. Sometimes it feels like he's delaying, he's missing the need. But I want you to know something. He's never late. He always cares and things are under control. I imagine Jesus, I mean, here's this man just in a state of shock. Do not fear, Jairus, only believe. Come on, let's get to your house. And the man silently walks with Jesus to the house. And when they arrive there, the mourners are already doing their thing. Symbols and flutes and wailing and crying. And Jesus says, Jairus, you come with me. Peter, James, John, you too. And Jairus, bring your wife. And they go past this crowd of mourners into the room where this dead girl is laying. And Jesus says in verse 52, do not weep. For she's not dead, but sleeping. In other words, her state is only temporary. But they laugh at Jesus because they, they know that she's dead. Without a word, Jesus moves and takes the girl's hand. Now, this is interesting. I want to pause for a moment on this because what we've discovered in these miracle stories already is that Jesus has been touched by an unclean woman. Remember, she reaches out, touches the hem of his garment. She was touched by, he was touched by an unclean woman. And then here, he touches an unclean corpse. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, just wash your hands, Jesus. Use a little bit of soap and some hot water. No, it didn't work like that. They didn't have indoor plumbing with hot water. They didn't have a bar of soap. We're not going to see that until the Middle Ages. No, that's not how it worked. They had purity laws to try to prevent the spread of disease. You don't touch things that are unclean. But here, Jesus enters the contamination, the sickness, the death of humanity. And he turns pollution into wholeness. He turns sickness into health. He turns death into life. My friends, isn't that the essence of the gospel? The presence of Jesus getting his hands dirty with the problems of this world. That's precisely what's needed, and that's precisely what's promised in the gospel. Jesus brings the dead to life. Here in this miracle story, he goes up to this, this dead girl. He takes hold of her cold, clammy, rigor mortis hands. And in verse 54, he says, child, arise. And the girl suddenly gets up. I think this is hilarious, verse 55. Give her something to eat. It's like classic tween. Are we having pizza tonight, mom? You know, I mean, it's been hard being dead all day. You know, like, oh, okay. You see mom going to get some food, you know. I mean, it's, but don't miss the point here. The point is in Genesis 1, God spoke life into existence. And here in this text, Jesus speaks and gives life. We're supposed to see here again that Jesus is divine. Four miracle stories. A violent storm, a Gentile demoniac, a sick woman, and a dead girl. We've learned what these stories are about. But I want to ask two final questions, and that is this. Why did Luke include them, and what should we learn from them? In conclusion, I think it's important to think about why Luke puts these four stories together right here. Because you could be wondering, well, haven't we already looked at miracle stories? And I think, you know, miracle stories, so Jesus' divinity, and we've already done that in the Gospel of Luke. So, I mean, maybe we should just move on. Have you ever studied literature or art? Notice how in literature, for instance, you have someone, their early writings, and then later we call them their more mature works, right? Like, it's like there's different eras of, of, of even the same person's literature. Or maybe in art, you're thinking about different periods in their art, like Picasso, he's got his blue period or his rose period. You got these different things. I think what Luke is doing, he's like an artist. He's clumping together these, these, these miracle stories in different periods to teach some unique things. Like for instance, the miracles of chapters four and five show us that Jesus is the peerless man. He, there's no one his equal. In chapters four and five, those miracles in that first period there, it's showing the power of Jesus over the power of evil. It's where Jesus is first called the son of man in Luke. In other words, he is the perfect picture of what humanity was supposed to be. 
we're seeing this power. Then we get to chapter 7 and the beginning of 8, another period of miracles. And this is where we see miracles for outcasts and outsiders. We see Jesus bringing the good news of the kingdom to a soldier, a widow, a sinful prostitute. And we're, we're beginning to see that Jesus is a gracious king. He's a peerless man, a gracious king. And now we're at this miracle cluster that we studied this morning. What is Luke trying to get us to see? I think that it's that Jesus is master and Lord. You see, the miracles we studied today didn't happen in these huge settings. Jesus didn't gather an amphitheater, fill it up with a huge crowd, and then say, now everybody watch and do a miracle. Instead, Jesus is in this boat with just his disciples, and he calms the sea. Or he's on the shore with just the demoniac, and he heals them. Or he's in this room, and he says, oh, just Peter, James, and John, please. And he does the miracle. It's like he's doing these miracles for his followers. It's as though he wants to instruct them that he is their master and their Lord. And they need to learn a few things, some important things, because in chapter 9, the very next chapter, he's going to send them out to go preach. But before they go out to preach, they need to learn some lessons from the Lord. And what is it that we're supposed to learn from this? And this is what concludes our, our service this morning. And that is that there's a thread that binds all these miracle stories together in chapter 8. And that is, if you think about them carefully, it's almost as if Jesus has curated these different encounters to bring his disciples along to places of trouble. Places of difficulty, suffering, maybe use an old word, places of tribulation. Right? I mean, here's Jesus. He finishes teaching the parable of the seeds, the sower, and the soil. And he says, let's get into a boat and cross this. It's not a surprise to Jesus that the storm comes. No, that's part of his plan for the day. It's part of his lesson for these disciples. They're going to encounter a storm. And then here's this aggressive demoniac coming at him. That's not a surprise for Jesus. He landed the boat there for a reason. He has a lesson to teach his disciples. It's not an accident that this woman encounters him while he's going to Jairus' house. And it's not an accident that he arrives there after the girl is dead. All of these are part and parcel of Jesus' lesson for his followers. He brings them to places of tribulation, difficulty, and trouble because he wants them to know that these things are necessary. In other words, it's not like, oh, once you start following me, you might encounter some difficulty sometime, maybe. No, he wants them to realize, you follow me, you will encounter tribulation. The gospel writer, Luke, he also writes the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 14, verse number 22, he says this, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Some people think that when they start following Jesus, life's gonna get easier. They're gonna have more comfort, health, better, a better job. Things are gonna be, no, my friends. You need to understand the necessity of tribulation. It's not that they may come, it's that they must come. It's not a possibility it's an inevitability. Jesus is in control of all these things, and he takes his disciples to a storm, a demoniac, an invalid, and a corpse. Though they enjoyed salvation, they still lived in a world that was under the curse and infected with evil. And these things represent the difficulties that we're going to face. I mean, think about it. If you're a follower of Jesus, that storm is an example of adverse circumstances. You're going to face some adverse circumstances following Jesus. The demoniac represents the oppression of evil. There are evil forces. There are demons. The woman's hemorrhaging illustrates physical illness and weakness. Jairus' daughter represents the last enemy, death itself. These disciples had to learn these lessons before they were sent out to preach. We'll find Peter later on in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised of the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Expect it. Expect it. Jesus is teaching them the necessity of tribulation so that they can understand the conquest over tribulation. You will face difficulties, but with Jesus, there is victory. He is the overcomer. 
Troubles must be expected, but they can be overcome. In each of these encounters that he takes his disciples on, they all have a happy ending. Why? Because Jesus shows them that he's the great overcomer. I think it's fascinating in every one of these accounts where they, and they enter into some sort of a trouble or difficulty or tribulation, in each of those accounts, the disciples have nothing to bring to the table except maybe like a girlish cry for help. Like, ah, <laughs> you know, help, master. You know, you see Peter, he's terrified. All they can bring to the table is a cry for help. It's Jesus who's the overcomer. He's the great conqueror. He takes his disciples to difficulty so that he can take them through difficulty so that they'll realize the power really is with him. I think they're learning here that they're going to face storms in life, but it's so important to be with Jesus when you face them. They're going to face evil in this world, but only Jesus can turn evil for good. They're going to see circumstances that appear to be beyond help. I mean, you see this demoniac? Oh, he's beyond help. No, Jesus can do something. They're going to face circumstances where they feel like it's too late. See, she's dead. No, it's not too late. Jesus can do something. Jesus overcame the trouble, turned things for good, and he's still doing that today, my friends. We're not free from tribulation, but neither are we helpless in tribulation. We actually can be victorious over tribulation through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks for your word today that it is living and powerful and it meets us where we are. We ask that you would help us to be disciples who are willing to enter the kingdom along the pathway of trials. Through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom. Help us to follow you. Help us to stand near to you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord... We ask that you would do your good work, that you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.